sponsor of Sons and Suffers podcast is Organic Climbing. Go to their website, use Sons and Suffers to get a discount on chalk bags, chalk buckets, everything they have on their website. And I will tell you right now, one of the reasons why I love organic is tried and true. Let me tell you, when I am falling from the heavens above on my highball boulder, I trust nothing with my ankles but an organic crash pad. Y'all know I love these things. I ain't going to trust these things on nobody else. All right, I'm out of here before I go crazy. But holla at your boys because they help this podcast. And yeah, we just trying to make sure it goes around, comes around. All right. Friends and enemies, lovers and haters, welcome to Sends and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. If you haven't already, please follow, like, and subscribe to Sends and Suffers podcast. Every bit counts and we would love to hear from you. So take a moment to leave a comment. These go a long way and help others know what they're getting into and how good this show is. If this is one of your favorite podcasts, consider becoming a Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you are investing in Sense and Suffers podcast and it's like buying your boy a taco, hanging out and getting to know the good good that is coming your way. Monthly recaps, early show releases, and all the other cool things that we do. Thank you so much for listening to Sends and Suffers podcasts. Today's episode is with Chris Mitchell. Chris was an Instagram friend that became an instant friend. And my time in Denver, we got to hang out, do the GCI Climb Malawi fundraiser. We got to go to a comedy club. And we just spent a lot of time talking about our feelings and how we have navigated through these spaces, not seeing a lot of people that look like us or represent our communities in these spaces and how we have just grown up to love these spaces. I hope you enjoy this episode of Chris Mitchell. Chris, how are you today? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing all right, dude. I'm excited. You yeah. are you are one of the I think you're I want to say you're the second like listener listener of the show that i've had on and so i'm really excited and uh i'm not gonna assume everyone knows who you are uh so who are you where are you from and what is your relation to the outdoors yeah uh my name is chris mitchell um some people in the outdoor community know me as chip um i am been living in colorado for six years but originally from the east coast um, was in New Hampshire for the first bit of my life and then Ohio. Um, and my relation to the outdoors is it's a very healing thing for me. Um, I found a lot of healing in the outdoors about 10 years ago. Um, but I'm a climber, um, an outdoor educator, a wilderness guide, um, and soon to be a rite of passage guide. Nice. So I want to double back on two things you just said. Why has it been healing for you? Like, can you kind of elaborate and expand on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my story comes with a lot of loss. Um, I've lost both my parents, 
Um, I lost my uh-huh. dad in 2011. Um, he had a long, long fight with kidney disease and diabetes. Oh, wow. Um, and he just lost the good fight. Um, and then my mom passed away May 1st to 2017. Um, and she was going into surgery, um, and they nicked an artery that should have been able to get under control pretty easily, but, um, she was a lifelong smoker, so, um, they couldn't get it back under control. So, uh, she didn't make it out of surgery. Dude, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, and so how has this translate? How has the outdoors been a part of the healing journey in this process? Like where do they overlap? Where do they cross? Yeah. Um, so when my dad passed away, I was in undergrad, um, up in Vermont at a small school that's no more, um, called Green Mountain College. Um, I was studying psychology and, um, a lot of my friends were in the adventure ed program and I, I just didn't really deal with the loss of him super well. Um, there was a lot of our relationship that I, because he was gone, I couldn't reconcile or I Mm. thought I couldn't. Um, and so I almost failed out of undergrad, um, and was put on academic probation and I knew I needed to change something. Um, so instead of taking another psych elective, I opted to do an outdoor living skills class. And in that outdoor living skills class, I started getting all these memories of childhood back that I had kind of pushed to the wayside. Um, and my dad, growing up in New Hampshire, he took us outside a lot and he tried to teach us how to use like a map and compass. But my twin brother and I, um, had, we, we've, were diagnosed with ADHD at like four years old and we just were like all over the place. But I remember specifically we were doing our map and compass class, um, for this outdoor ed class. And I just got these memories back of him off-roading and, uh, taking us up to a ridgeline and like trying to teach us how to shoot a bearing. And we were just all over the place, but it was just like, oh my gosh, there are some good memories back there. And so started doing almost like my own wilderness therapy for myself of like doing um, the school therapy and then getting outside and then learning all of these outdoor living skills helped to make this huge change for me. And I, I started to commit myself to wanting to provide that change for others. Um, so 10 years ago, I added adventure ed as a second major for school. Um, so it, I could get as close as I could to wilderness therapy as like an undergrad degree. So I, um, graduated in 2015 um, with a degree in psychology and a degree in adventure education and went to it of, uh, wanted to stay away from wilderness therapy for a bit. Cause I had done, um, my like last project in school was in burnout and wilderness therapy. Um, and knew that if I had just jumped into this field, there'd be a big possibility that I would hate it and just not continue on. Okay. So the next, uh, next best thing in my mind was to do outdoor education. Um, so I was working at a summer camp already that really helped to solidify all these changes I was making. I got to show kids how to rock climb. I got to show kids how to like set up a stove, um, how to hike, how to use a map and compass, all of these things that I just learned. Um, and then was like, how can I 
prolong the summer camp kind of feel throughout the year. So I started working at Frost Valley YMCA in upstate New York, did that for about a year and a half and really cut my teeth in outdoor ed. Um, I was an adventure guy, so to speak, but uh, learned a lot of environmental science and started teaching kids outside and loved it. And seeing that it, at Frost Valley, there were kids who were coming from the city, coming from Harlem, coming from other neighborhoods in New York City that had never seen the outdoors, so to speak. Oh. Like they got to go outside and play basketball and that kind of stuff, but it was their first time being in the mountains. And just seeing the change that they had in that and seeing the connection they had in that redoubled all that kind of healing that I was feeling okay. from the outdoors. And so this is really what solidified your passion. This is really, honestly, I can see now what solidified why you are in adventure therapy now. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this something you always thought you would do? Like, what did you think you would be or do when you were growing up? Did you, I mean, you had mentioned your dad was a pastor before. Did mm -hmm. you you know, as a PK, you know, did you think you were going to become a P? No, I didn't think I was going to become a P. I, um, my dad was super into like, uh, adventure movies. And so he would always like, like one of the first movies I remember watching growing up was Indiana Jones. And my dad <laughs> was awesome. kind of like my Indiana Jones. And, uh, I think that spoke a lot about him as a person too. He was a black man and grew up in a highly, highly segregated city in, in Ohio, uh, that we later moved to. Um, and he was a freedom fighter. His, um, his mom helped to desegregate the schools and he, um, he fell in love with the outdoors just growing up. He was born in 1948. Okay. Um, so he grew up just like playing in the dirt going fishing. He was a boy scout. Um, and I think as he grew, his love of the outdoors grew and he really tried to instill that in my brother and I, and it was kind of a romanticized view of the outdoors. It'd be like, we knew it was important. We, I grew up like noticing like the beauty of sunsets and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then my dad would always have like, uh, uh, Indiana Jones or like uh cliffhanger on. And he'd always nudge me and be like, Hey, you going to do that someday? I was like, I, I don't know. And then um, when we were living out in Ohio, um, surprisingly, I got into rock climbing there. There were like a bunch of limestone boulders, huh. like five minutes from my house. And uh, we went, with to do like some cleanup of this park where these boulders were and uh we were like oh they kind of had developed it into a little bouldering area some people that in springfield there's wittenberg university and some folks from the university had kind of cleaned up these boulders um and so todd and i tried to to get into bouldering and we did and uh, for the like first year, we didn't have climbing shoes. We used old wrestling shoes. Oh um, yeah. And we this. just, we, we just like tried to, to figure out this climbing thing. And, um, one of the first, uh, climbing movies I saw was King lines with Chris Sharma. Yep. And yep. a lot of my, uh, beginning climbing style was kind of modeled after that. I thought you were supposed to scream uh, doing every single move. So I would do a lot of like dynamic moves and scream a lot when I started climbing. <laughs> Dude, I'm here for that. That's freaking <laughs> awesome. 
Dude, I think that's it's kind of kind of cool. Like you went from one extreme to another. Mm-hmm. Your dad is showing you Indiana Jones cliffhanger to King King Lions. Like nothing else in between. <laughs> nothing else. Nothing like you know. Like I'm trying to think of. Oh, I can't remember what that movie is where those boys find a dead body and they poke it with a stick. Oh, Stand by Me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah that's good. That mm-hmm. was a good one. And then, oh man, you're like pressure. Like I like little known fact, but dude, I am, I am a connoisseur of movies. Oh, heck yeah. I'm a big connoisseur. Like, um, like back in the early days, well, I say early days, but like, uh, I want to say like maybe 2014 or something like that. We had a movie club going on at my house and me Mm. and my buddy Clint, Chris and Patrick would all come over and we would just like, everyone would pick a movie. And we would just watch a movie and we'd have an intermission, but then we would like rip the movie apart. Like, it's like, <laughs> like I remember Clint introduced me to the movie Raging Bull, which mm-hmm. is amazing movie. It has nothing to do with the outdoors, but I'm going, but I digress. I'm going on a rant. <laughs> um, but, and I'm assuming your brother's name is Todd. Yep. yep. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And then, um, that's wild that your grandmother was a part of like desegregating the area. And so, um, is there anywhere that we like, we could like look up or read about them or read about the, some of the work that they were doing in the area? Just, just in case someone wants to like kind of dive deep and just is like, Hey, this is really interesting to me. Yeah. I, I don't know myself if there's any articles out there. Um, my or names that we can look up, I would look up Evelyn Mitchell, um, and, uh, Springfield, Ohio. And one of my, uh, my aunt was also super into, the community in Springfield later on. And she was super inspiring to me as well of like, she was a, a, a pediatric nurse, but with like more of a mental health side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, her name was Winky Mitchell. She passed away this, this past year um, in September. Um, and she was a mover and shaker as well. But if you want to look up um, the desegregation of stuff, I would look up Evelyn Mitchell um, and time frame, like decade or year, I would say probably 1960 to 1965. That's enough. Yeah. That's enough. I mean, the internet will do the rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And okay. So then when did you get here to Colorado? Cause you know, I like you're starting in Ohio, mm-hmm. which I mean, they're not too far away from each <laughs> other, but nor are they very close. Yeah. So, um, when I was in, when I was at Frost Valley, my brother and I conceived this, this scheme of, of trying to hike the Appalachian trail. And we were going to sprinkle my dad's ashes all the way up. Cause That's one cool. of his That's beautiful. Yeah. His, one of his favorite places was Baxter state park. I don't know if he ever summited Mount Katahdin, but no, I haven't, but it's on the list now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we were like, Oh, we could sprinkle his ashes on the top of that. And then one of my really good friends named Cheddar um, was like, yo, you should do the whole thing. So Todd, when I started my second season at Frost Valley, he wanted to do outdoor ed as well. He had studied journalism in college, um, and had, had joined me at summer camp a year after I had started and like was feeling a lot of the same kind of things as me, like added confidence, feeling like really healed in the outdoors and he wanted to continue that as well, um, but he couldn't get a job at Frost Valley. The, the roster was already full. So he applied at this place called the Pali Institute in California in the San Bernardino Mountains. 
And going into that season, he was like super hyped on California and climbing out in California as well. And, uh, he, uh, he started getting some cold feet about hiking the trail. And I was like, okay, uh, you know, trying to plan this, me being in New York, you being in California just doesn't make any sense anyways. Why don't I move out to California, join you at Pali and, uh, well, uh, if you're open to leaving in April kind of thing. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay. And I think he secretly knew I would fall in love with this outdoor ed center too. And ended up literally falling in love. I met my partner, Michelle out there. She was also an instructor and we were both starting to get burned out with outdoor ed a little bit. Cause in most outdoor ed places, like a school will come up, teachers will be there and chaperones will be there. So uh, you don't have to be in cabin with kids. You just hike and teach with them all day. But at this place you were in cabin with kids and then teaching all day long too, for like oh, 21 wow. weeks. Um, so we were just like, yo, we need to take a break. And That's my mom cool, passed man. and we were like, okay, I'm not tied down to my mom was living in New Jersey at the time, not tied down to Jersey anymore. Why don't we move in together and move to a really cool state? And one of my childhood friends was living in Fort Collins. Okay. And so he offered us a room, um, and uh, for pretty cheap. Cause he was like the housing manager there too. And I was like, okay. So we moved to Fort Collins. Uh, we're trying to take a break from education, but, uh, the best job that I could find was doing before and after school programming for a school in, in Fort Collins mm-hmm. and, uh, tried to bring some outdoor ed kind of stuff into it. Um, and the principal at that school, cause I was also a paraprofessional there. Um, was like, Hey, we need some more chaperones to go up the, to this place called Calwood. And I was like, okay, bet in my brain, like recon mission. Right. And so we went up to Calwood education center, which is in Jamestown. And they were doing things a lot differently than what I had experienced in outdoor ed. Usually they might have like Frost Valley has like 5,600 square acres, but a lot of it's devoted to like cabins, lodges, ropes courses. Um, and they do have a lot of land to explore, but, um, Calwood has 1200 acres. They've got 10 cabins. That's it. So you had complete freedom to create an experience for kids in these 1200 acres. The schools would sign up for four subjects. And as long as you hit the vocab or do a couple activities in those four subjects, you really got a lot of freedom. And so it was like almost like the culmination of all of the skills that I was learning in outdoor education. Mm -hmm. And so I was, we immediately upon getting back from that, that trip applied and both got accepted and offered a position. And so Michelle and I were up at Calwood for three years. Um, Even through the pandemic, we started in 2018. Okay. And, uh, slowly, but surely we just got more people out there. Todd, um, was out there for a bit too, doing some part-time instructing, but he also wanted a break from teaching. He continued on at Pali, um, went and became like an administrator over there um, and was the ropes course manager. So 
I tended more towards facilitation and Todd tended more towards ropes course um, and really loved the maintenance and stuff behind that. So he was like, oh, I'll just join in on the maintenance crew. So he joined this guy named Luke, who's our maintenance director, crazy individual, super character, had like huge handlebar mustache. Um, and so we kind of just built like a little, little community over there at Calwood. And um, the pandemic was just super hard. Um, we didn't have schools coming up, so we were doing a lot more natural resource things there and, uh, just started getting burned out. And around the same time I had started doing therapy to, to process my mom's death. Um, I was starting to have panic attacks before kids were coming up, uh, and was like, this needs to change. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, was starting to see someone um, through Naropa community counseling where I'm an intern now. Okay. Um, and he kind of brought me on to this idea of grad school and kind of rekindled this fire of like, Oh, I really want to do healing outdoors. Um, and Naropa university has a wilderness therapy program. Um, so I, decided to leave Calwood and come down to, to the city life, so to speak here from living up in the mountains mm -hmm. and, um, started the Naropa program two years ago. Um, and now here I am. Okay. So I want to kind of segue on something too, cause you know, you and I met, um, through social media, through Instagram, which I think everybody meets that way nowadays. <laughs> Um, you know, cause you follow people's lives and I don't know, like, you know, which post is not always you, but you can tell when people are being authentic with it. And one of the things that, you know, you had mentioned to me in your guiding experience, and we both very resonated on as being two BIPOC guides and resonating with that. And, you know, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but yeah. like, you know, I would say you're more on the fair skin of things. You actually, your complexion is almost identical to my father's. Mm. So my dad is, you know, very mixed on, on his side of the family. Cause like, you know, in Jamaica, you both would be called yellow man. And, okay. uh, and so have you ever had to, and this is just a question more so for me and anyone listening to this, I know I try not to be selfish, but this is a selfish question for me. Mm. Um, you know, have you, how have you navigated that space and have people, cause I have a friend who's much on the fair side of things and he made a comment one time and he was like, you know, sometimes when people know that I'm BIPOC, it's one thing. He's like, it's more disturbing when they don't know. And then the conversations that are had. And is that something that you've had to navigate in your profession, you know, on all aspects, whether it's guiding or education or something like that? Because to me, I think that's very it's not something that it's not something that black and brown folks think about a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think you have this very unique, you and him have this very unique thing where I, I not correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you have the ability to navigate the world in such a different way. And yeah. I, and I, and I don't, and this is a big thing that I don't think that people are talking about like mixed children are like their experience is uniquely and different, mm -hmm. uniquely different. And I did different than mine, different than a lot of people. So I'm going to stop rambling. But the question is, is have you, how has your experience been as a black man and as people who just assume that you're not? Yeah. Um, I think 
as I've gotten older and gotten into guiding, gotten into outdoor ed, um, and now more recently I've had courses in like, um, social multicultural foundations and like getting skills on how to broach topics like that, especially like working as a therapist. I think it's super important when topics of race come up, the ability to, to be able to broach. Um, but I would say broach real quick. Yeah. I'm not going to assume everybody knows that because I don't. Um, so broaching would be, um, being able, and especially with a therapy client bringing up, um, uh, these kinds of topics. So if, if, uh, a client identifies as white and as we're, we're getting through a session and topics of race come up, that ability of like, Hey, I just want to pause you for a second. Um, I'm really hearing some topics come up that I want you to, to know that I identify as a person of color. Um, and being able to bring that topic in, in a way. Um, so it's like, it's addressing the elephant in the room, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but when folks don't know that there's even an elephant in the room, it, it's very interesting. And I've, I've worked with hundreds of groups. And I think one time I was doing a team building event at Frost Valley um, with um, some females from Harlem. Um, and I think there was a volleyball team and they were just coming up for some bonding with their team. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were doing a tour of, there's a place at Frost Valley called the Forceman Castle. Yeah. Um, and uh, I forget exactly how the topic came up, but I said like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm mixed. And a lot of the leaders of that group were like, oh, honey, we know. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, right on. Cool. Did you ask them how they knew? Um, I did a little bit. It was kind of like, oh, when you know, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's the truth. It's the truth. Yeah. When you and I met, I like, I looked at you and I was like, oh, this makes sense. Mm. You know? And I was like, it made sense right away. And I can see other people not knowing, Mm. but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think when I'm around wider spaces, which is the predominant thing in the outdoor education community for the most part, um, we would always have like diversity trainings. Um, so then I would name, um, that I'm biracial or mixed, or I I've used a bunch of different ways of identifying in that way. Um, and would kind of, in a, in a sense broach without knowing that I was broaching at that time. Okay. Um, and would sometimes get some like, Oh, are you really? Or there's a lot of times where, um, the, the classic question will come up of like, so what's your background? Ooh, and it's yeah. like, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was wondering when you'd ask. Do you think, would you rather people just straight up, just ask the question or would you rather them tiptoe around and be like, what's your background? What's this? That's it. I mean, this is not a world that I live in. People mm-hmm. are very much like, okay, this is you, mm-hmm. you know, people now, you know, if you go farther back into my bloodline, which I think this is true for a lot of people mm-hmm. of color, uh, at least it, like that have not who come from slave backgrounds in the United States, like there's a little bit of mixed in there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, do you, do you have a preference of that or would you rather just someone just straight up ask? I think it, 
I would rather someone straight up ask. I think that, um, the more I learn about social multicultural kind of things and the, the topics around race, I think that a lot of people beat around the bush and Mm -hmm. in doing that, a lot of microaggressions can, can happen. Yeah. It gets weird. Yeah. It just gets weird. It's like when you're on a date and the date isn't going well and you're like (laughs) trying to make it go well, but you both know you really want to end, but you both are like, we haven't gotten our food yet. And it's like, should we just like, do you want to like not do this and like just like split the bill and like get do- and get bags? Because I feel like at that point, like you bond better. Yeah. Because you're not like, you're not hiding from the situation. Exactly. Like, it just makes it weird. It's like almost, it generates that like squirmy feeling. Mm-hmm. And that squirmy feeling is where microaggressions come in. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of folks, it'll be like, they'll notice my hair and be like, oh, you have such beautiful curls. And then it'll tiptoe into like, so so how do you get those curls? And it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm biracial, I'm mixed. And, yeah. and it comes up in that way, but it rather, I'd honestly rather them just ask. Yeah. You could have a, a conversation around it too. I think everybody has some culture um, truth, and, and topics of culture should be more mainstream in society and just like diving in when you're meeting someone, you know? Yeah. I think it's hard for some people because mm-hmm. I think some people define it as labels. Yeah. And they're true. like, well, I don't want labels. I don't want this. And I'm like, eh, there's labels on everything. Yeah. I mean, it's That's like, a good point. <laughs> I mean, like you, you can't get away with it. Like, you know, someone's going to think you're black Jewish or something else or whatever. It, it, it doesn't matter. And in all reality, if you don't let that bother you as much, it actually turns into me, in my opinion, turns into actually a delightful talking point because mm-hmm. at that point, like, you're not talking about so much what do you do for work or with this. You're really actually talking about someone's essence of who they are, where yeah. they are, where they come from. And then at that point you start, you can, as long obviously as you are being genuine and authentic, you can start having genuine, com- I don't like the word comparisons, but finding similarity in life experiences. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, well, if your life experience is this, this was this, do you feel like they're the same at all? And I feel like, you know, sometimes people can take that as like trying to make your life experience theirs or yours that. And, but I also think there's a lot of beauty in that because it allows you to understand where people are coming from. And it also allows you to be able to step back a little bit more mm-hmm. and be like, oh, okay. My experience is very different. This is a very golden moment. I want to actually like really lean into what this person is saying, you know? And I don't know. I think, I think it's important. But yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. That makes sense. So I guess we're... So where do you want to be in the next five years, man? Mm. Like, like, but actually, so this is a question. What are some things you want to achieve in the next 10 years? I know 10 seems like a big number, but I, I think more people, when someone's like, what do you want to do in like a year, a year and a half, people <laughs> pack in so much. Like, yeah, they I want to do. lose 25 pounds. I want to, I want to make an extra 500. I, I want to make an extra thousand dollars a year. I want to do this. I want to do that. And in 10 years, I always find people are like, I want to do this, you know, and this is so much more reasonable. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, like in 10 years, like we can break it into fives if you want, but like in 10 years, where would you like to see your career, your life, your like achievements? Like, what do you want to do? Yeah. I think so in the next year I'll be graduating and I'll be a licensed. Yeah. Thank you. Congrats. Big deal. Yeah. I'll be a licensed professional counselor candidate at that point. Ooh, why um, candidate? So I have to get 
2000 hours after I graduate to become a fully licensed professional counselor and then also take an exam with that too. Do you not, can you not get those hours now? (laughs) So part of it, I'll be getting 700 hours now. Okay. Um, But once I graduate, then it's like real deal, but I'll be able to see clients um, and work as a therapist, get paid as a therapist. That makes sense. Um, but it's just kind of like another stepping stone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll take probably around two years, but in 10 years, I hope to have kind of cut my teeth more in the therapy realm. Mm-hmm. Um, really gotten the ins and outs of insurance billing, Medicaid billing. Cause I really believe that what I want to do is, work with lower income folks, mm-hmm. um, and have some, some full cost clients as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I can, that allows me to work with folks on the margin more. Mm-hmm. Um, but my real hope is to have some sort of private practice, um, where I either have my own permits or am subletting permits from a guide service where I can take folks outside as part of therapy. I think. Wilderness therapy, like the youth program side of it, I think it's beneficial for some, but, and that's also a hot topic issue right now. Um, but I see therapy in the outdoors as the best combination of treatment in my mind. And I think that can also address accessibility in the outdoors. I think if I get to work with BIPOC folks and things come up where it's like, okay, we need to get you some nature and Mm -hmm. they have never experienced nature or like shied away from hiking in Boulder or going into the mountains because of all of the barriers that we all know about with BIPOC folks getting outside. I think that offers a stepping stone of like, let's do some healing outside then you can fall in love with the outdoors. Then you can build some skills so then you can, they can get outside themselves and continue on that journey where I think like for me and even listening to one of your past episodes with Q, it's like, I want, I want folks to be able to not have to rely on guides or rely on Mm -hmm other means to get outside. I think building skills so that they can get outside independently is it's the game. It's the game. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the final boss. Mm -hmm. That is the absolute final boss of the game. Yeah. 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 That's, it's the hardest part. Yeah. And if I could be a tool in a toolbox to get outside, that would really make me happy and know that I've made a positive impact. I mean, dude, in 10 years, I think me personally, I think you're aiming small, but <laughs> that's just me based on like meeting you in this little bit. And in 10 years, you're not going to be a tool. You're going to be fucking Excalibur. Okay. <laughs> so let's just call that for what it is. Thank but, you. But, uh, Thank you. you know, you said something real quick that like made me spark out of curiosity. Why is getting kids outdoors or adventure therapy or that, why is it a hot topic right now or a hot button up a sensitive item topic yeah, right now? Yeah. I've, I've heard like some controversy come up, like Paris Hilton came out in the last couple of years and said her experience with wilderness therapy was like torturous and wilderness therapy has had a, it's dark ages. Kids yeah. have died. Um, yeah. and that's because programs were doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, I, 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 I can understand that. It's yeah. like, 
former football coaches are, uh, I, I look at it the same way as like athletic coaches when we were growing up and a little earlier, it's like, like you just beat the living hell out of kids until, mm-hmm. and you think that makes them strong at the end. And that's not really how it works. No, no. Um, and I think it is moving in a different direction. I think one of the big things is some programs still, um, take kids in the middle of the night. So their parents sign them up for this wilderness program or it's actually uh, know a kid that I actually know a kid that, that, that their parents did that. I mean, yeah. now granted this kid had a lot of problems and was having, I don't know if there was drugs or things like that involved, but it was getting to the point where like there was severe interventions that had to happen. Yeah. Almost maybe like if they're listening to this, I'm not going to give names, but like, and don't quote me on this. I'm just trying to remember a conversation, but like to the point where administrative law enforcement, like a lot of things had to get involved and it was like, and it was just basically like, Hey, cool. And then that's it. And I had a friend who actually worked that job. Like, he was a part of doing that. So I didn't know that was, I mean, I didn't know that was considered a frowned upon practice. Yeah. I think it's, they're looking at it more so of like, if a kid wants to change or get something out of these programs, they should have more buy-in from themselves so that like taking them in the night kind of takes that, that away from them. Um, But even like what you're saying, I think brings up like, sometimes it's kind of necessary yeah. because like, I know, I mean, like I'll never forget there was a kid. He almost straight up. He was so problematic, but he was going to hit his mom in front of me in the gym. And I remember it's the few times in my career, but like he raised his hand to hit her and I grabbed his hand Mm -hmm. and I was like, no, not in the gym. What do you do in your homes? What you guys do there, but not here. Yeah. Not allowed. And he looked at me and I was like, if you do this, you are permanently kicked off of this team and you are permanently barred. And it was a situation that I never really talk about. I don't bring it up because the parents asked me not to file a report or do anything mm-hmm. about it. And it was years ago. I mean, this was back in D rocks days, mm-hmm. but I was like, absolutely not. Yeah. And like, but at the same time, like how do you manage that situation when your kids will physically harm you? Yeah. Your kids will stab you. Your kids will attack you. Mm-hmm. You know, so then it like, it makes sense because the kid's never going to choose to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, and I get like, I, I'm not going to get into why the children are that way. That's like a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast. Oh itself. yeah. Oh yeah. It really is. But I definitely understand. I didn't, you know, it makes sense that like, I didn't know Paris Hilton came out and says that said that, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I I'm going to leave Paris Hilton alone. I mean, I don't know her, (laughs) but based on the things that of her life, I mean, you know, we're going to leave that one alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Dude, that's wild. But back to my original statement, I feel like you're aiming too small. It's 10 years, man. Like, I feel like you can achieve that in four. That's true. Yeah. Aim, dream big. Yeah. I think. Dream big. Real big. Like if, if you don't feel stupid about what you're, listen, whatever you're about to say, if you don't feel stupid and silly about it, then you're not dreaming big enough. Okay. Right on. I think owning some land or being back up at Calwood in some way where I am running wilderness therapy retreats, um, skills clinics and rite of passage trips mm. would be amazing. And something that I would love to work towards 
And again, it getting that kind of like nervous, silly kind of feeling behind it. I think having gone recently on a rite of passage trip for school, I definitely feel called to that work. And I think it's still part of the therapeutic process, especially in our Western society where because we don't have rite of passages built into our culture, other than like graduating high school, we kind of have a country full of adult children. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> you are not wrong. Lord of mercy. You are not wrong. Yeah. Can you actually kind of like simplify like that rite of passage statement or give, I, I love your example of like graduating high school. That's a rite of passage, but I still think it's a little bit of a vague topic because mm -hmm. I think also too, for most Americans, and I'm going to go ahead and say this because until I got into the outdoor world, adventure therapy is like this dark art yeah. of like, like, what do you mean adventure therapy? Like kids are just going around hiking. Of course they're going to feel good. They're exercising. They're getting endorphins made, but it's more than that. Mm -hmm. It's much more than that. But can you kind of like, I guess, quick example of like, or description of what is a rite of passage? program or thing that someone can go through. Yeah. So I think it first starts out with connecting them to nature in more of a visceral way mm -hmm. um, where they're allowed to explore concepts of like the animate world. So like getting into some woo woo kind of hippier stuff, like mm -hmm. connecting to spirit, connecting to the spirit of a piece of land. Okay. And once you get to do that, then challenging yourself. Most rite of passage trips involve a solo. Um, the rite of passage that I went on was a three day, three night solo, um, with the option to fast during it. And I think fasting can, can add a lot to those experiences. If you look at the work of like Bill Plotkin, um, the school of lost borders, um, and a couple other places, uh, fasting is part of, of, their rite of passage. And I think it's useful and it's a tool if done in the right way. But I think the more important piece is that solo time outside mm -hmm. where you get to explore within and you get to explore that again, that spirit, that animate world in the light, in the daytime, and then in the dark, in the, in the night and really going on a quest out there, but you're also questing within and coming back from that experience changed. Um, so I think a rite of passage is connecting to the spirit of a land, challenging yourself in a way that you haven't yet been challenged. That could be a physical challenge of climbing to the top of a peak, or it could be a more inner challenge of okay. seeing the darkness that's inside of you and making friends with it. Um, there's, a, a storyteller and a rite of passage guide named Dr. Martin Shaw. And he wrote this whole book on courting the wild twin, but knowing that there's a wild person inside all of us that are a piece of us that we've pushed down, that we've suppressed, that has been told it is too much of this, too much of that. And you forget about it. And sometimes that little piece of you can slap you in the face. Agreed. But learning how to become friends with it and knowing that it can teach you something about yourself 
is what a rite of passage is all about. It's funny you say that because, you know, coaching over the last 21 years, you know, rolling on 22 soon. One of the big things I can always tell with boys when this is happening, especially with boys, I see them, I see, I see, I see myself in them when this is happening. And I do see it in girls too. I do see it in myself in certain girls, but it comes a little older in girls. But with boys in their early, in their, I would say mid to late teenage years, it sometimes it comes a little later. So I would say anywhere between like, oof, say youngest 16, really 17, 18, all the way up to like 25, 20, maybe latest 25. They want to slay a dragon. They want to win a war. They want to conquer something. They just like, they need to do something big. And I think that's why they gravitate towards rock climbing. And like, I want to climb this hard grade. I want to climb this big thing. I want to do this. Like they got, they feel like they need to save a maiden or whatever you want to do in these fable stories that people read as growing up. And the same thing happens for women. Mm -hmm. The exact same thing that happens to women. I think it comes a little later in life that I've seen like, you know, when they've gone off to college and then, you know, I meet the former athletes that I've coached and I talk to them and they, they tell me and I'm like, wow, your ambition level is just like, going right up you're speaking to the the hero and the heroine's journey right now okay yeah yeah and i see it you know and i'm not saying it doesn't happen in girls younger i think honestly if anything they girls probably go through it twice in my experience it's like listening to them growing up boys definitely go through it like there's one or two (laughs) there's definitely one time in their early teens and maybe you know in your like you know your first midlife crisis you know you have then it's like happening again Mm -hmm. but I do feel like that desire. Cause I remember being that way myself. I remember in like my early twenties, late twenties, like I would tell people, I'm like, I want to slay a dragon, win a war. Just do like, I feel like I need to do something. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't understand is like, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to openly admit what I'm about to say sounds absolutely freaking boring and it sounds stupid and it sounds that, but me accepting that and acknowledging and existing that is enough. Mm-hmm. And if I accept that it is enough, then it allows me to, then I, what I learned was it allowed me to then see some of the other root issues that are causing this thing to be so, so apparent in me and so like violent or so loud. And the root and the other things that were causing it were actually the true blockage that I needed to wait to move forward, that it would allow those feelings to actually be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And I allowed that. And it was just areas in my life. You know, how you do something is how you do it. How you do one thing is how you do everything. And I realized I needed to approach those other things and stop, stop shying away from them because those were the things that would make me feel, you know, the hero's journey, mm. you know, and it, it, it's, it's a big thing. Like, you know, it's wild. Like hormones are a terrible thing and (laughs) whether you believe in God or not, but whoever made them screw you. (laughs) And it sounds too like you did your own courting of your wild twin, or if you want to get to a more therapeutic lens of it, um, I really tend towards a therapy modality called internal family systems or parts Mm. work. And you, you did some parts work without even realizing you were doing parts work. Okay. You, you made some peace with some parts of yourself that had served you, that had done certain things for you. And they got a new role. They got updated. Mm. I, I have 
um, a lot of different parts in me. There's one that I call the boy that came up to help protect me when my dad started getting sick. Like he, he started lashing out and this part was way quiet. I couldn't really look people in the eye and it helped me. It kept me safe. I also, um, grew up doing a lot of combat sports like wrestling, martial arts. I played rugby in college and, uh, there's a part that I tend towards that too, that I call the Ronin cause I can't wrestle anymore cause I got some shoulder problems. Okay. Um, but this, this part also was like this warrior that like would stand up, would, would get loud, would be big if I needed it to be. And on the wrestling mat too, when I learned how to turn that on in high school, it's when I had a big change in, in, uh, in how I was able to wrestle and wrestling in Ohio is a big time. It's a big, it's big in the Northeast. Wrestling is big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, this is, this conversation is reminding me of, I think you'll vibe with this. So like one of the last most healing moments I've had in my life, I was listening to a YouTube, a little clip of Pharrell Williams. Mm. And I think it was, not Rick Ross, but Ross, something old white guy beard, who's produced a lot of music in his time. And Pharrell started talking. I can't remember if it was him or Pharrell, but they started talking about like the mass that, no, it wasn't Pharrell. It was not Pharrell. It was, it was another person, but I'll put, I'll put the YouTube video on the show notes and I'll also send it to you. But long story short, they started talking about the mask that he would wear in front of his friends and then the mask that he would wear in front of his family mm. and the mask that he would wear that. And so I have this thing, um, that I've done and, um, I haven't bought and bought the, I want to buy wooden heads to do it, but I have three Luce de Dore masks in my house. Oh, that's epic. One of them is all gold and his name is, uh, Alta Ego, uh, Alter Ego. Mm. Uh, the other one is, I call him champ. Cause I don't know what else the name, but I want to name it as a, uh, 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 I want to keep tradition, stick with traditional Latin names, mm -hmm. even though luchador wrestling was originally not. I love that Mexican culture has embraced it and it is, but it was originally made by, I think a white guy who came down <laughs> to that, who just capitalized on re Mexican wrestling. And like, it was one thing, but like he kind of took it to another level, mm -hmm. but then thank God the Mexican people coined it and made it their own. Um, and then this other mass that is bright purple and it's called, uh, uh, I don't really have a name for it, but one is the alter ego. One is the hero. And then one is the version of me that I want to be. Yes. And so uh, sometimes, and I said in a very dark time in my life, and I know this is going to sound super fucking crazy and super weird. And everyone's going to think I was on shrooms or Molly or something <laughs> doing this. But I remember I literally put on those masks and I had a conversation with myself in the mirror. Yes. And I would talk. And I was just like, and I would say whatever I wanted to say. And then I would record that conversation and then I would go back and listen to it or watch it on my phone. And I'd be like, okay, like I have to like do this. And it was probably one of the weirdest things I have ever done in my life. But oddly enough, one of the most healing things that yeah. I've ever done because, and now like I don't wear them anymore, but occasionally I'll break them out and I'll have a conversation. They're just sitting there and I'll just like, you know, and it's like you hear and like very few people in the world do not have an internal monologue. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's, it is such a thing that there are people who do not have an internal monologue, but I think most people in the world do. Mm -hmm. 
And it's like, I'll have this going on, especially with these two items in front of me, it allows me to work through that. And so it's interesting. This whole conversation just like brought that into realization for me. Yeah. And again, you're, you're doing parts work with that and uh, the way that you were having conversations with these masks and wearing the mask, that's another form of therapy called gestalt therapy. Oh, I didn't Uh, know that. And like, that's where there's a, the idea of the empty chair technique. So um, oh, I've within heard of this. like, yeah, yeah. I've heard of this. Yes. Where you can have conversations with like past loved ones or parts of yourself. And it turns into a really, really intense, but really, really helpful mode of therapy for some folks. Did you listen to the episode with uh, Oakley and I, Beckley? I'm trying to think if I did. Oh, we talk about this artist who sits in a chair and allows people to sit in front of them. And then a pass. I, I, it's one of the most moving things you'll ever see on YouTube, but she sits in a chair and just allows people to just talk or just be present with people, but she doesn't say anything. And she did it for like 48 hours or a week or whatever. But then out of nowhere, a past lover of hers came and sat in a chair and I guess they never reconciled and she never broke character, but then she just broke and started weeping. And they both started weeping in a chair like uncontrollably weeping. Like I'm crying now thinking about it. And um, it was, the only way I know how to describe it is we all know what it looks like when someone's like going to throw up or that, but we all on like, even if you've never seen it before as a child or as an adult, the uncontrollable convulsing that comes from wailing and weeping. Mm -hmm. And I do mean wailing and weeping is immediately like it's visceral. Like we're, it's like it's genetic memory. Like we're all tied into this. And it was one of the most powerful pieces of art that I have ever seen in my life. And then after they're both done crying, the lover just gets up and walks away and you see she's trying so hard to compose herself. And then she mm. brings herself back to be present for the next person to sit back in the chair. And it was to me at that moment, it was one of the greatest moments of like, it was the first time in my life I saw someone be broken and put themselves back together in a short amount of time. Whoa. And she, I don't remember if the artist talked about it at that moment a lot. I don't think she does. I mean, I think she talks about it obviously in some interviews or something, but like, I'd be very curious to know like the very ins and outs of that, but I'll try and find that for you and send it. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life. Like sounds so intense, but so incredible. Oh dude, other people were crying in the room. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like, you we all know it's like when the feelings and the emotions just reach the room, like it's thick, like a humidity walking outside. Yeah. Oh, I keep finding myself wanting to pull on all these threads now too. Oh, like, we're we're, we're going to have another conversation. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely do. <laughs> um, I don't want to wrap this up, but we do because we're on a time crunch. Yeah. But um, I do, I, I think it's important for people to know this conversation exists. And I'm happy that, you know, whether you are a man or a woman, it doesn't really matter. However, I do think it's very, this conversation is very important to me because I think men need to know that conversations like this is are important. And I, you've listened to my episodes. I'm, I am unabashedful about talking about my feelings. A hundred percent. Yeah, and you are. And I like, I think it's very important that we talk about our feelings, especially as men, because as we just talked about previous generations of outdoor therapy and things like that, like, you know, we're just encouraged not to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just the wrong thing. And I'm very, 
very lucky, lucky. I had a very loving father who talked about his feelings all the time. So much to the point sometimes where I thought it was annoying as a child. And now thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that he did that. Cause it's taken me a long time to actually come out of my own shell and talk about them more. But, um, it, it it's important, but if people want to connect with you, talk with you, even hire you for your services, how can they find you? How can they get in touch with you? What are, what are the ways? Yeah. Um, so I would say, um, on Instagram, I'm trying to remember what I'm on there as right now. Um, so you can just follow me on Instagram as Chris Mitch 22. Um, and then outside of that, if you go to Colorado wilderness rides and guides, um, just search it in Google, it'll come up. Um, you can book me for a trip. Um, I do a lot of different outdoor activities, um, through this company or corporate team building events. Um, and I'm also still connected with Calwood education center. Um, they've done so much for me and I try and give back to them as much as I can, but they actively do retreats. And if, um, if you're looking to have someone facilitate those kinds of retreats, you can, um, also book me with them as well. Um, but yeah. Um, and then outside of that, I am currently an intern at Naropa community counseling. Okay, perfect. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I know we've been playing a little bit back and forth <laughs> and then we got to hang out at the fundraiser, go to an amazing comedy show, which was so hilarious. So hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love his opening line. He was like, do you want to talk about suicide or my cat? Hey, <laughs> all right. My cat died. <laughs> <laughs> it's so not funny, but it's so funny. <laughs> oh my gosh. BK is hilarious. So, so hilarious. Oh, good. Yeah. You're, oh, I'm going to send you that link so you can mm -hmm. keep going to that. Cause apparently it's his thing. He hosts that. That's amazing. Yeah, dude. It's so like knowing that he hosts them all over the Denver area mm -hmm. and I guess he does do shows in Boulder. Okay. Bro. It's, it's going to be a staple now that when I'm coming back in the town. So yeah, but thank you for your time. I appreciate you. And I look forward to our future conversations. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was such a good time to share a bit of my story and connect in this way. It's been amazing hanging out over the past couple of days too. Dude, it's been so good. I hope you enjoyed this conversation of Chris and I getting to know each other, talking about our feelings, talking about how we navigate through these worlds and in our spaces. And I honestly hope this is a conversation for you gentlemen or anyone who identifies and connects with us and identifies, sees ourselves in them, whether you're young or old. I hope this conversation modeled a way that you can have deeper, closer, and more intimate conversations with the people within your own community and the people that you trust and you lean on. Because remember, if you're not suffering, if you're not pushing hard, you're not pushing really deep, is the sin really worth it at all? I don't think it is. I think you got to go deep to get real high on the top of the mountain. You got to dig down low in order to see the value that is at the top of this thing. All right, I'm starting to ramble as always. <laughs>